Well, Daniel chapter 5, I'll read that in just a second, but we, we come, we, we've been working through the book of Daniel, uh, and, and we come to Daniel 5, which is, which is really similar in a lot of ways to Daniel chapter 4, but, but as we transition from Daniel 4 to 5, we, in Daniel 4, we've, we've now left King Nebuchadnezzar. So we've moved on from Daniel 4. That was the end of Nebuchadnezzar in this book. And we've learned a very clear lesson at the end of chapter 4, which Pastor Will taught us last week. And that lesson is namely that, that God is, is the king of all the, the nations and all the kingdoms, but that he humbles the proud. So after last week's sermon from Nebuchadnezzar himself, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 writes a kind of a, a testimony. We move on to chapter 5, and we're going to hear the same exact point. We're going we're to encounter the same exact truth that God humbles the proud. And so they are similar, chapters 4 and 5, but, but, but they're, they're drastically different in this sense. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, and his humility consisted of, of him losing his, his mind and his dwelling shifted from among men to be among the beasts. And so that was his judgment. And then Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 came to his senses, he humbled himself. And his right mind was restored to him. And that, that's how he can write chapter 4 and say, hey, here's the lesson I learned. And so the drastic change in chapter 5 is that God's judgment doesn't drive the Babylonian king of chapter 5 to repentance. Instead, the judgment of the king of Babylon in chapter 5 drives him to his grave. And so the judgment of God that's seen here in chapter 5 is a judgment that, that leads to the death of the proud one. And so the clear point as we consider 4 and 5 together is that God judges the proud. Whether that judgment leads to repentance or that judgment leads to the, the grave, the point remains that God judges the proud. And so we're going to read Daniel 5 in just a minute. But before we get there, there's a lot that happens between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And so I just want to take a, a few minutes at the outset and set the stage for Daniel chapter 5. So if you look there at Daniel 5, the very first verse says, Now King Belshazzar made a great feast. And so right at the beginning of, of verse 1 of chapter 5, we notice there's, there's a new king. It's, it's King Belshazzar. Now, now he's not Nebuchadnezzar. Now, now he's not Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's Babylonian name. That's not him. This is a new king of Babylon. He's ruling in Babylon here at this time. And if you, if you just fast forward to the end of chapter 5, there's the spoiler alert, so plug yours if you don't, know what one, don't want to know what happens. But in, in verse 29, and, or verse 30 and 31 of chapter 5, this is the ruler who, verse 30, he is killed. And then a new ruler, not only another king of Babylon, but an entire new kingdom, empire, begins to reign. So Darius the Mede is ruling at the end of chapter 5, where at the beginning of chapter 5, it's, it's Belshazzar of Babylon. And so if you remember, all the way back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of this statue with all these different types of material that, that make up the statue. And the interpretation of the dream is that, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's going to fall. There's going to be an inferior nation that's going to rise and conquer Babylon. Well, that's what we see playing out here in chapter 5. And so we, we see the, the replacement of Babylon with the Medes. Okay, so this is a massive transition. In fact, what, what happens at the end of chapter 5, it, Daniel records it in just a few verses, but on the world stage, it is a massive thing. A, in in the, this landscape of world history, the rise and fall of, of Babylon is a huge thing. But Daniel says, oh yeah, and, and, and he lost the kingdom, and then a new guy started ruling. And so the point in Daniel, it's not that big a deal, 
because this massive transition from, from the Babylonians to the Medes is nothing more than another kingdom rising and falling in line with God's universal plan. That's why they're not like, hey, this is a huge deal. It's a bit anticlimactic, in fact. It's because it's just one more kingdom rising and falling, but it's also because the main point isn't the fall of Babylon. The, the point is the pride of Belshazzar that leads to the fall of Babylon. And so it's the unrepentant pride of Belshazzar that is the focus here. That Belshazzar didn't know that there's one king overall. And it's not the king of Babylon or Persia or Rome, but it's the Lord himself. And so the first readers of, of, of Dan, the book of Daniel in, in, in chapter 5, as they read it, they're being reminded over and over again that God is in control. Yeah, God has changed times and seasons. He's removed one king. He set up another king. It's just a, a, a king of a different empire. But it's still the Lord who is sovereignly ruling the stage of history. So, so that's kind of the, 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 the first bit of context here. Another uh, issue that I think just needs to be addressed briefly is the identity of Belshazzar. Now, now I've already said he was in power when Babylon fell, but there's a few other things to note, to note about Belshazzar. Now, for a long time, Daniel 5, th this verse 1 and the following verses, were, were at, for a long time, was the only evidence that someone named Belshazzar ever existed and ruled in Babylon. Almost every time in the Old Testament you see the rise and fall of a king, there, there's, there's archaeological, historical evidence that validates that. And then people say, oh, well, maybe the Bible maybe knows what it's talking about. Well, for the longest time in, in Daniel 5 was the only place that Belshazzar existed. And so people would say, well, that means this story is fictional, is made up. Belshazzar, we have no confirming evidence of him. Um, and and so, so people would deny the historicity of the book of Daniel, especially, or at least chapter 5. Um, and it wasn't until the last half of the 19th century that Belshazzar actually became a, a recognized, actually this, there's, there's, there's con concurring evidence that he was actually a historical person. And so, so there has been in recent history a, a, a whole a, a host of evidence that has confirmed that, in fact, the Bible is accurate in what it says, that, that he did exist. And so, so you, can, you can Google that and find out the historical evidence for Belshazzar. But it's just fascinating because for the longest time people said, well, well what do we do? The history doesn't confirm what the Bible says. Well, well we don't know what to do. Well, now, it, it, given enough time, history will always coincide with Scripture because we, we believe the Bible is true. And so, that, that's Belshazzar, a little bit about his past, but the second thing to know about Belshazzar is that he wasn't officially the king of Babylon. So, Belshazzar was a ruler, he was king in one sense, but, but here's what we've, we've come to know, historic record has, has validated the, 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 the situation here. So, Belshazzar, if you read, read history books, the last king of Babylon was not Belshazzar, it was a guy named Nabonidus. He was the last king of Babylon. But Nabonidus, so, so he, was, he was a few uh, generations after Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar dies, and then there's three more kings, and then there's Nabonidus. And, and these kings, in between these two, rule for a year or a couple months. Right? So there's massive, there, there's rapid turnover. Well, Nabonidus becomes king, and when he becomes the final king, and he is actually the official king during chapter 5, but what happens is, so there's Marduk is the god of Babylon. Well, Nabonidus comes up, and he doesn't, he doesn't favor the worship of Marduk. And instead, he is, he is tempted towards the worship, or he favors the worship of a moon god whose name was Sin. And so he wants to worship Sin and make him the, the, the god of Babylon, 
And so the, there's, a, there's a revolt among the high priests of Marduk, and they say, actually, you can't rule in Babylon. You're going to go far away, and you're just going to be a king that's far away because we are going to revolt if you don't let us keep worshiping Marduk. So Nabonidus is the king, but he's sent far away. And in his absence, he sets up a co-regent, someone to rule on his behalf. He's going to be ruling somewhere else. And so his son, Belshazzar, is set up in his place. So Belshazzar is the king of Babylon. But he's ruling in the place of his father who has been exiled to rule somewhere else. In fact, you can, you can look at Encyclopedia Britannica. Go to their website and, and this is all confirmed there. So Nabonidus is, is forced to rule elsewhere and his son is set up. So that's, that's Belshazzar. And this is why, as, as we'll read in verse 7, it maybe it'll come across kind of strange that, that this king says, hey, whoever can, can solve this problem I have is going to be the third highest official in Babylon. Well, it's the third highest because because Belshazzar himself is the second highest. So again, I think this is fascinating. It's just helpful to know that, that this is all confirmed in, in historical, non-biblical records who, that confirms the, the testimony of the Scriptures. Now, the last thing to note is between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar is as we read the chapter, I've already established that Belshazzar is the son of Nabonidus. Well, in the text, in the chapter, it, it's referred to the relationship of, of, Nab- of Belshazzar is that he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar. So there's a relationship between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar that, that's referred to as son and father. Now, that could be problematic because I've just said his, his father is Nabonidus. His father isn't Nebuchadnezzar. And so, so there's some, some ways that, that this, this could be understood. One, it could just be he's the father in a general sense. So, so as, as Christians, we have the church fathers. They're not literally our fathers, not even our bloodline, but they were, they were the first so we're in the line. They were the beginning. So it could be that Nebuchadnezzar was, was a king of Babylon that came before Belshazzar, and so he's his father in that sense. That's possible. But I think more likely is that Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's father in a more specific sense, that he is of the line of Nebuchadnezzar. You think about Jesus in the time of, of his ministry. He, he would talk to the Jews and say, or the Jews would say, Abraham was our father. And there's a lineage there. They say he's our father in the sense that we're of his line. And it seems to me it's most likely that, that Belshazzar is, is a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, which would have happened if Nabonidus comes to rule and, and Nebuchadnezzar's daughter or granddaughter is still alive. Nebuchadnezzar's dead, but there's still the royal line. And so he says, well, I'm going to marry my son to someone from Nebuchadnezzar's line to consolidate power. And so in that sense, he would have been a grandson or in the line, directly line, of Nebuchadnezzar. And so I think that's probably because in chapter 5, the, the point that Belshazzar misses is you should have known that God humbles the proud because you know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. So there's a relationship between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. And so that would mean as we, as we encounter the queen here in chapter 5, this would have been Nebuchadnezzar's either widow or maybe his daughter. So the queen is not, not necessarily the wife of Belshazzar, but the, the, the grandmother or the mother here. So I, I think that's helpful here at the outset, but, but let's read the chapter, and, and hopefully this will help as we read um, the, the, the verses here in Daniel chapter 5. So, so follow along, I'm going to read Daniel chapter 5, and then we'll work through the, the passage together. So Daniel 5, beginning in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. 
Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Verse 5, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever, let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called in, and he'll show you the interpretation. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered, and he said to Daniel, you're Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. And I've heard, that of you, I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the enchanters, they've been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a gold chain around your neck and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and he said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He's still talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Verse 22, And you... His son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways. You have not honored. 
Then from his presence, now Daniel is, is continuing, from the Lord's presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Daniel continues, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances, king, and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put on his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would, would help us in the reading and the, the benefit of your word to us. Would you encourage us, give us understanding, and help us to respond rightly to this, your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, as we work through, there, there's, there's just three points here in chapter 5. We're, we're going to, the, the setting here, a frightening feast, verses 1 through 12. A firm word, the interpretation that comes from Daniel, verses 13 through 8 through 28. And then a fallen kingdom, the conclusion there, the, the, the eerie conclusion at the end of chapter 5. So a frightening feast, a firm word, and a fallen kingdom. Let's start there, a frightening feast. And so there at the beginning of chapter 5, we see the stage is set, and we get, a, we get an idea very quickly of, of the kind of king Belshazzar is. He's extravagant. He's excessive. He's over the top. So he, he calls in a thousand of his nobles, his lords, the, the most important people in Babylon are all gathered for this feast. And not only that, not only does he have this big feast, but then, then he's front and center. And he proceeds to, to drink wine upon wine upon wine in front of the thousand of people that are gathered. And so the picture being painted here is that of extravagance. The king here is setting an example. He's, he's following a pattern that would have been normal for powerful kings and rulers of that time. So he calls a feast to celebrate, and then what would normally happen is there's a feast, and this is the king's feast, and then the, the king would be hidden far out, from, out of everyone's sight, but it would still be the king's feast. Well, here he says, no, 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 I'm going to do this in front of everyone. And so he begins enjoying the feast and drinking, and, and what he's doing is he's setting the example and saying, hey, this is what you all are here for, so, so get busy, have a party, it's on my dime, go, have at it. And so he sits and drinks in front of all of them. And one commentator concludes it, it may be safely assumed that within a short period, the king and his guests were well on their way to inebriation. It certainly wouldn't have taken very long for things to get way out of hand. This, this is an illustration of, of the, the mindset of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Only in this case, it's tonight I die. But yet he is having his party. And so in the midst of this party, what, what really makes it frightening is the way that they deal with, with the, 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 the vessels of the Lord. So verse 2, when Belshazzar tastes the wine, he says, hey, hey, remember those golden vessels that came from Jerusalem, from, from Yahweh's temple? Bring those out. Let, let's drink out of those. Let, let's fill those and use those to, to, to make this party better. And so these are the very vessels that back in Daniel chapter 1, when, when Jehoiakim was captured and, and, and Jerusalem was overthrown by Nebuchadnezzar, he sent these vessels back, and they were probably just set aside. Because even pagan kings would know, we don't mess with the deities, with other deities. We, we don't mess with, with their, their vessels for worship. We, we just want them to know that they're in our temple. 
And so we have authority over their gods, but, but no king would, would in their right mind pull these out and start using them for common use because even the pagan king would have known, okay, this has been set apart for, for the worship of some deity, so I'm not going to mess with that. But a clearly inebriated, intoxicated Belshazzar says, bring them out. And so these vessels that had once been set apart for the worship of God in the temple of Jerusalem are now functioning as solo cups at the king's party. Hey, yeah, yeah, pass it around. Here you go. Ha- have this one. Have this one. Right? This, is, this is a frightening thing for Belshazzar to be doing. It's a belittling of the one true God that he knew he should have humbled himself before. Not only that, but as, as the wine continues to flow, right, they, they begin to worship the, the nobles and, and Belshazzar begin to praise the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And so, so they don't even say, well, maybe, maybe there's something to the, the God of Israel. It's like, oh, there, there's some gold. Let's worship the God of gold, knowing very well that that gold was made by someone in Babylon. So they, they, they were out of their minds. It's, this scene is sad and empty. It's a weightlessness here. And it's even more depressing, I think, when you realize that this is the very night that Babylon falls. The, the Medes are at the gates. Maybe they're making their way in all right. In fact, some people say that the Medes invaded this night because they knew that this feast was happening and that, that the city would be susceptible to attack. But in just a matter of hours, Babylon was going to fall, and here's the king celebrating and partying. What a tragic picture of drunken folly mixed with desecration of the Lord's vessels, mixed with this gross idolatry. And here is, is how you find the great Babylonian empire on its final night. And so this is the, the stage set, and it's into this context that the hand of the Lord, or a hand from the Lord, appears. Verse 5, a human hand appears and begins writing on the wall. And it's a cross from the lampstand, so, so everyone around can see what's happening. And the hand just begins writing, and, and this, this writing, you have a king who probably in his right mind would have been a little afraid, but, but you have a, a, a king who's drunk out of his mind, and he sees a human hand, hand writing, he loses his mind. He's terrified. Verse 6, the ESV says his color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, and, and, and they translate a phrase, his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Well, if you have the CSB, they translate that phrase, and they say his thoughts alarmed him, and he was so terrified that he soiled himself. I mean, that, that's the idea here. He loses control of his bodily function because he's so frightened at, the, at what he sees taking place here in his palace. And so he's terrified, and, and he, like his father, says, well, well we, we've got to find out what this means. There's some divine meaning here. I need someone to tell me what this means. Not only read it, but, but tell me what it means. And so he says, call everyone in, and whoever can do this, I'm going I'm to give... Uh, a purple cloth, I'm going to give a a golden chain, I'm going to make them the third highest in authority. And again, like with Nebuchadnezzar, no one could do it. And so he's stuck. What what is he going to do? And and that's where the queen mother steps in. I think it's interesting to note that she's not at the feast. She's not at the feast, but she hears what's going on, and then she says, okay, let me me go save this this foolish king. Let me tell him what he can do now. So she she comes in, and she says, hey, there's a guy named Daniel that that your father, Nebuchadnezzar, actually made him high. At this point, Daniel's been forgotten, and she's probably trying to, to make the point to, to, to Belshazzar, you, you've forgotten about him. You shouldn't have done that, but he'll still save you here. You just call him in. He had this ability that your father recognized that you haven't recognized, and so this is what you need to do. Call him in. 
And so Belshazzar takes the advice of the king, of the queen, and calls in Daniel, which leads to the second point there, a firm word. So there in verse 13 through 28, we see the firm word. So Daniel comes before Belshazzar, and, and the king explains the situation. And notice he refers to Daniel as, as that, that exile from Judah. He won't say, weren't you the one that, that my father gave all the authority to? Didn't you serve Babylon? He says, no, no, you're that exile. I think this is a, a, a hit, an intentional attack on the insignificance of Daniel. But he calls Daniel and he says, Here, here's the situation. If you can do this, here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to bless you with. Now we know Daniel up to this point. We, we've seen him. And we know the God who's with Daniel. He, he's not going to take a price. He's not going to take payment for these. He says, no, king, give it to someone else. Keep it. I don't need your stuff. I just know God is trying to communicate something to you, so I'm going to tell you what he's going to say free of charge. I don't want your stuff. I can't be bought off. And so there, Daniel begins to interpret the, the words, the, the writing on the wall. But he doesn't, if you look there in verse 18, he doesn't, start, he doesn't start immediately with the interpretation. Instead, he gives this history of Nebuchadnezzar. And he replays the folly of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. He says, hey, even though the Lord made your father, Nebuchadnezzar, great and mighty, even though he gave him all this stuff, he had all this power, Nebuchadnezzar refused to acknowledge the Lord. And you know, Belshazzar, that King Nebuchadnezzar was proud and that his pride led to him being humbled by the Lord himself. And then in verse 21, he says, hey, and his judgment, the, the humility that, that he was driven to was, was, was caused by the fact that he was, he was made to, to be like an ox, and, and he, was, he lost his mind. He dwelled where the animals dwell until he came to his senses. This is what Daniel is telling Belshazzar before he reads the writing on the wall. He's reminding him of the story of Nebuchadnezzar because the thing that Belshazzar cannot escape is the fact that he knew all of this. He knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew exactly what the Lord had done to the prideful king of Babylon. And he had, he, had, he had known about it. He had seen it. He had been told about it. Which is why verse 22, before Daniel even tells him what it means, he, Daniel says to Belshazzar, You, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, though you knew all of this, you have not humbled your heart. You missed the lesson. The ship has sailed on you because you, instead of humbling yourself, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Not only that, you've desecrated the vessels of the Lord. And you've praised all the gods of gold and silver and bronze. All of these you freely praise. But the one God whom you know has given you everything, that one God you have refused to honor. And that, Daniel says, is why we are where we are. That's, that's why this hand, that's why this message is coming to you, Belshazzar. You know why it's here. So, so Daniel sets the stage. Now when he says, when he tells him the, the interpretation, then, then he knows, Belshazzar knows what, why it's coming to him, why this is happening, why this judgment has come. And so Daniel says in verse 24, is why this writing has come before you tonight, the pride and arrogance of you, Belshazzar, your refusal to learn from the life of Nebuchadnezzar. This is why this judgment has come. You are not without excuse. And so then Daniel interprets the writing on the wall. And that's where he says the, these four words, mene, mene, tekel, parson. And these, these are technically, they're Aramaic terms that are technically different values of currency. 
And, and so a lot of people say, well, the, 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 the magicians or the enchanters, they all would have known the words because they're Aramaic words. They would have known them, but no one could make sense of them. They couldn't interpret them. And so, so Daniel is able to say, well, well, here's what they mean. They mean, here's why God has said, you've been numbered, you've been weighed, and your kingdom has been divided. Right? God has numbered the days of your kingdom. It's brought it to an end. The time is up for Babylon, is what the Lord says. You've been weighed in the balances, and you don't measure up. You did not rule the way that you knew you ought to. So you, you are lacking, and therefore the judgment that's come on you and your kingdom, and you, on you and Babylon, is that it's been given over. The clock has run out on you, king. And so this is the firm word. This is the word of judgment, a fixed judgment, a certain fate for Belshazzar and for Babylon. And so no further message is needed from Daniel. The message is clear, and it spells doom, which is why it's interesting as we turn to the last section there, verses 29 through 31, a fallen kingdom. The, the next thing you, you might think, if we, we hadn't read ahead, when it says, then Belshazzar gave the command, you might think, well, he says, well, we'll get Daniel out of here because he's just declared judgment on me and my kingdom. But instead, Belshazzar gives the command and he rewards Daniel. Is this one last display of pride? Like, Haha, okay, now I know what it means. Yeah, good luck with that. You just go, have all your rewards and get out of here. I got to get back to my party. Maybe this is his pride on display, but he clearly acknowledges that that Belshazzar, Belshazzar clearly acknowledges that Daniel has told him what it means. He's given a, a satisfactory answer. And so he gives him the purple clothes. He commands, Daniel, here's what you get. The, the purple clothes, the gold chain, in the position of authority. Which we know, well, why does Daniel accept them now? Maybe he didn't have a choice. Maybe the king said, no, this is my declaration. Maybe Daniel says, well, at this point, these are, these are useless gifts anyways. Right, the kingdom's fallen. These don't mean anything. We don't know why, but, but, but Daniel receives them. I mean, I thought, what, what good is a voucher to the gift shop while the t- Titanic is on the way down? I right? mean, that's what Daniel's like. Okay, sure. Yeah, whatever. Give me, give me whatever you want. The, the point is, Belshazzar keeps his word, blesses Daniel, rewards him for the interpretation, and then the kingdom falls. Darius and the Medes begin ruling in Babylon. And here's why I think Daniel probably accepts this in, in God's sovereign plan. When, when Darius and the Medes take over Babylon, they, they often will, will, will leave all of the, the non-royal leaders in positions of authority. Like, okay, you've been here. Okay, we're, we're just going to put a new king and, and all the, the other people can just stay in their place of authority. So Daniel, will find next chapter, Darius is ruling and Daniel's still in authority. So here's God's sovereign plan in, in orchestrating the rise of Daniel again to this place of authority. So now when, when a new kingdom comes over, a new, new empire begins ruling, there is Daniel finding favor in the, the eyes of the king. And so we have, Nebuchadnezzar, or we have Daniel who served under Nebuchadnezzar, comes back into a position of authority at the end of Belshazzar's rule, and then he's there when Darius begins to rule. And so verse 3, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. They don't know exactly how he died. It's almost certain he was killed by Darius and the Medes as they overtake the city on that very night. And just like that, Babylon is no more. Nebuchadnezzar and his vast empire collapsed. And it collapsed ultimately not for any other reason than that he had served God's sovereign purpose. Babylon's time had run out on God's timeline. And they and their king would unceremoniously exit stage left. 
and there's a new empire, which would then re be replaced again, which would be replaced again, which would be replaced again. That, that's the pattern that we saw in Daniel 2. And so that's where we, we leave Daniel in the end of chapter 5, which, which will then next week, Lord, we'll, we'll cover Daniel chapter 6 with one, with, with one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. So you can read ahead to Daniel chapter 6 because, Lord willing, we will cover that next week. But as we close here, Daniel 5, before we observe the Lord's Supper, I just want to leave you with a few points of application from Daniel 5. And that first point of application is simply this, God is in control, or the sovereignty of God. As we continue to work through this book, chapter after chapter, the theme remains the same. I mean, it's almost, it's almost, it's similar to the New Testament book of Revelation in, in that it proclaims over and over that there's one God who is Lord over all. God's in control. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Evil reigns, evil destroys, but God is in control. And so I don't think we can minimize the comfort and confidence that comes from this reality that, that God's in control. This book continues to show the sovereign hand of God ruling. And his rule is not just over specific events of world powers, but over specific events of individual lives. His, his rule and his sovereignty is exhaustive. Now, I recognize, understand, you can wrestle and maybe have some, some questions or, or struggles with some of the implications of this, but what you can't do in light of the book of Daniel and the rest of the scriptures is to deny that God is God. That is clear. God is God. And, and what you can't do in light of Daniel 6 is to say God doesn't have the world under control. I mean, we, we all sang it growing up. If you grew up in church, he's got the whole wide world. Where? In his hands, you and me, brother. In his hands, all the little children. In it, that is good theology. And that's what Daniel 6 says. God is in control. And this is the God of Daniel. It's the God of Abraham, the God of Joseph, the God of Moses, the God of the prophets who could predict, hey, you're going to be judged. This is coming. The Lord is, is going to judge his people. Or the God of Peter, Paul, the apostles. This is the God that they serve. And part of what it means to faithfully live as a Christian is to trust and believe, to acknowledge God is in control, which is the opposite of the pride that was on display in Belshazzar's life. Right? The, the remedy to pride is, a, is an acknowledgement that God is God alone. There's one God. There's one throne. And there's one person who deserves to be on the throne, and that's not me and that's not you. And this sovereignty is comforting because it means that your life is, is never in limbo. I mean, I thought about, about some of you. So my dear friends in this local body, your days may be winding down. You can take comfort in the sovereignty of God and trust that your life is never going to end too short. If you're still here, it's because the Lord has declared it so. And you can serve faithfully trusting him until your day comes. The same is true for us young people. Our day may come sooner than we think, but God is in control. I mean, think about sickness, disease, pandemic, tragedies. All of these are part of the world we live in, and I get that. But none of these can take your life apart from the sovereign care of your Lord, period. And so because God is God, we can live our lives confidently. Yes, we need wisdom, but at the end of the day, we can trust the Lord who is in control. Second point of application, which is clear from chapters 4 and 5, is simply this. God opposes the proud. 
God opposes the proud. This is the simple application of, uh, similar to what we saw last week. God opposes the proud. This is James chapter 4, verse 6, where James says, God opposes, or God stiff arms, refuses the proud. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride comes before the fall. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Mark chapter 7, Jesus, in his own words, says, well, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for, for here's what's within a man, evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So pride is an ugly thing. It's ugly in human eyes, and even more so, it's ugly in the Lord's eyes. I mean, just think about how you react when you see pride on display at a human level. We see it all in, in our, our natural inclinations. I, I hate that person. That's so ugly. Whether, whether it's, if you're a sports fan, it's the opposing team's quarterback or receiver who, who just scored the game-winning touchdown. They're celebrating, and you're like, I can't believe that. They're, they're so evil and proud. Whereas if your team would have done the same thing, you'd have been rejoicing with all those around you. But you see pride, you say, that's ugly. Or maybe it's a politician making claims and taking credit for something that, that they didn't do. You're like, what a proud person. They had no, they had no role in that. Maybe it's the young kid who, who wins the neighborhood race and thinks that he or she is automatically the fastest person in the world. Oh yeah, I, I beat him so I can beat my dad. It's like, you're so proud, kid. And we, we can identify it. Maybe it's the spouse or family member who, who can't ever be convinced that he or she may not know everything. If you live beside that person, don't look at them now. But you know who they are. Right? It's pride, and we see it, and we can identify it. The list could go on. My, my point is simply that pride is everywhere, and it's not hard for us to recognize it. At least it's not hard for us to recognize it in others. But here's the problem. What is it that, that makes us so quick to see it in others, not in ourselves? Do you know what that is? That's pride. So the fact that we can say, oh, yeah, everyone, I see pride. The fact that we can identify it so quickly in others is the very problem at work in our own hearts. Pride is part of our very nature. We can see it in others, but the reality is it's just as present among our own selves and members. And the challenging thing for us is that most of the time, our pride is hidden. It's hidden in the sense that it's not clear obvious for the whole world to see. For us, it's often, for me, it's often an attitude of my heart or, or a thought in my head. I, I'm too moral to, to let it work itself out in, in my actions, but it can run rampant in my brain and in my heart. And so what we have to be careful not to do in trying to apply Daniel 5 is to see the example of pride in Belshazzar and treat him the way that he treated Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar knew what pride led to for King Nebuchadnezzar. He knew that God humbled the proud, yet he did nothing about it. And I would probably say the reason he didn't do anything about it is because he thought, well, I'm not proud. That's Nebuchadnezzar is proud. I'm not proud. And for us, we can be tempted to look at Belshazzar and his example and think, I'm sure glad that I'm not like him. Which only confirms the pride that's rooted deep within us. And so simply, we just have to recognize that, that we as Christians are not immune from a pride that removes our eyes from God and places them squarely on ourselves. That is our natural tendency. 
We're all our best defense lawyer, and we, we are all prone to live lives where everything revolves around us. And so this example of Belshazzar should serve as a warning. Not because we, we, we fear immediate judgment from the Lord. We, we, don't, we don't say, oh my gosh, I have to change so that he, I don't die tonight, that the Medes don't invade. But we recognize pride for the evil that it was. We say pride is part of the fallen human condition. And so we ask ourselves, I mean, I mean just ask yourself this. Think about the, this past week. Did you get angry? What, why did you get angry that time? Why were you so angry about that? Or, or why did you fight and argue with someone else? Why did you get so mad at that, that thing that didn't go your way, whether at home or at church or at work? Why, why do you get so mad about that? Why do you think, well, everyone else has it better than me? Why do you think, well, well I deserve this? Or I, I deserve that? Can't I just get a break? Can I just find a spouse? Can I just get a better job? Can I just get healthy? I, why can't I get that? I deserve that at least. Why, why do I think I'm better than you? Why do I think, well, well why didn't they invite me? Why didn't they ask my opinion about that? I mean, in all these circumstances, most of the time, it involves you believing that you belong at the center of the universe, and that's the problem. You are the problem. I am the problem, and it's because we are proud people. And so we, we, we just have to recognize that, that pride is going to be our enemy until we are with the Lord. And there are many ways for us to combat and fight pride, and, and so I'd be happy to, to talk to you about some of those, but, but what I want to do this morning is I want us to fight our pride with the only sure way that we have to defeat it, and that's by turning our eyes away from ourselves and turning our eyes towards our Savior. Because the last point of application is that God gives grace to the humble. And so, so this is what, what leads us, this is what transitions us to the Lord's Supper, because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we find hope for the proud. There's hope for the proud in the gospel in the gospel of Christ, we find forgiveness for the sinner. We find that God gives grace to the humble. And so for a final point of application, I just want you to think about the death of Christ. And in the gospel, we find not that Jesus completely eliminates sin from our lives, but that Jesus completely eliminates the penalty that we deserve for our sin and gives us new life. So we can fight pride. We, we've been given one another. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given God's word. And so we have new life, and we're able to fight sin. We're not slaves to pride. In the gospel, there's hope for proud people like me and like you. The astounding message of the gospel is that God gives grace to the humble. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is patient. And he would desire that you would repent of your sins and turn to him. I mean, this is, this is the message of the parable of Luke 18 the tax collector and the Pharisee, where, where the one who is accepted by God, the one who's justified is, is the tax collector who says not, hey, I'm glad I'm not like these people. I'm, I do this, I do this, I do this. I go to church and I, I do all these things. That's not the person who's accepted by God. The one who's accepted by God is one who doesn't look to himself, doesn't even look to heaven. He looks to the ground and says, God, have mercy on me. That, that's where we have to be, friend. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, that's where you have to get, 
You have to humble yourself and say, I bring nothing to this relationship. I bring the sin and the penalty and the guilt. And I need mercy. And that's what the Lord brings. He brings it all. God is merciful. It's like King David in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Jesus himself in Mark chapter 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so we're all sinners here. If you've never been to this church before, you need to know I'm a big sinner. I'm a great sinner. And that would be concerning were it not for my great Savior. Jesus paid for my sin and he paid for yours. Those who are trusting him have free forgiveness of sins. And so as we turn to the Lord's table, we recognize we don't deserve to fellowship with him. We don't deserve right relationship with him. We haven't earned it. We haven't worked hard enough to to be credited this. We don't bring anything of value or worth to this table. Instead, we're freely invited. We're actually carried to the table. We're welcome, not because we deserve it, because our king is kind and gracious. And so, so Pastor Will is going to come and lead us in this, but let me pray as we transition to Lord's Supper. I, I want you, I want you to, to humbly come before the Lord and, and receive this meal and be sustained by God's grace. So let me pray for us.